So here we are. You may or may not remember, about two weeks ago, I mentioned that it would be a historic moment in Star Trek history. Uh, I was off by one. It's actually this week. This is the first time Deep Space Nine has been the only Star Trek show on the air. All Good Things was last week. It, obviously not for me and for us, but historically speaking, when these episodes were coming out. Which means Deep Space Nine now has to carry on the Star Trek legacy, at least for like a little under a season. I don't remember the exact number of counts. I actually have a list uh, until Voyager takes over and we'll be ready to carry Star Trek to new and broad horizons. Sorry, sorry. I like Voyager, but season one? Eh. Anywho, I also want to give praise to Mark Major. One of the things I've said many, many times is that special attention needs to be paid to the people who don't get a lot of attention. In a video game, that usually means voice actors for random NPCs, random civilians or people in the background. In a television show, it usually means background actors, people who are just there to add to the immersion of the scene, to, to make the scene feel more believable and more real. And a good background actor is actually a very valuable asset, which is what Mark Major is. He, this is his first episode with Star Trek, and he will be doing many things in the future of DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. And I wanted to give him that praise. It's something I talk about so often, like, to use a quick parallel in case you don't get my point, picture Babylon 5 for a second. Picture any of the scenes, uh, like on the bridge, or, but more importantly, like in the market area. And now picture that instead of the, like, 20 or 30 people milling about, there's the people who actually have lines, which is probably two or three, and maybe one guy in the background, and that's it. Wouldn't that have hurt that scene to do it that way? Thus... I, I think my point is made. It, it's the same thing I talk about many times when it comes to good guest stars. Star Trek lives and breathes on its guest stars. I've said that many times. Uh, and we do actually have a couple good guest stars this week. But a really good show, any good television show, needs to do a really good job of using background elements like that to add to that. It's, it's, it's additional brushstrokes. Each one of those is an additional brushstroke, and each one of them adds to the picture. So I just wanted to give praise, because not a lot of people really tend to acknowledge that kind of thing, and I'm a weirdo. This is also the first episode that Avery Brooks directed, so that's three firsts with this episode. Um, I'm not sure what I think of his directing style yet. I'll have to tell you in the future, because he directs future episodes. I will admit that everyone involved basically said he did a really good job, especially since he, in the way he reached out to the actor who plays O'Brien, who, let's be honest, put in a really good performance this week. Then again, that's not super surprising. He's a good actor, and O'Brien is awesome. But anyways... Oh yes, this is also basically the beginning of the Let's Hurt O'Brien thing, which I don't get why that's a thing. Like, I've never found that funny or interesting, and I just kind of stare blankly every time someone brings up the Ha ha! Time to hurt O'Brien thing! It's like, okay. Why? <laughs> Moving on. Given the lack of support that the Federation has been giving to Deep Space Nine... I know this sounds weird, but can they afford O'Brien to go on vacation? He has very little engineering staff. In fact, from what we know of previous uh, seasons and episodes, most of his engineering staff is actually Bajoran. So, <laughs> is this really something you want to do, is have your chief of operations, basically your chief engineer, just be like, yeah, I'm out for a week, or however long. And I mention this as well because it's clear O'Brien is thinking the same thing. Now, if the Federation actually supported this place, if this was being treated as if Deep Space Nine was important to Starfleet, let me actually say more specifically here, if Starfleet was treating this as if it was important, they would have people ready to rotate in for these kind of things, for people to take leave. Instead, it's just like, go on vacation, because you need it. Okay. 
what's going to happen when I get back? Because all that work is still going to be there. In fact, it's going to be worse, and I will have fallen behind. You can kind of see that in O'Brien's mindset and perspective, too. Why do you think he took those technical manuals with him? Why do you think he was worried so much about all the crap that was, that was in process or was about to be in process when he was leaving, right? You could, you could just see, just picture O'Brien. I, I can't do his voice, and I'm not even going to try, but just picture him being like, oh, I just know the to-do list is going to be a mile long when I get home, you know? It's not like O'Brien doesn't want to take time off from his wife. It's just that his full-time job is insane. Anyways, I have a quick note here. I've always liked the Keiko O'Brien relationship, and I've never been quiet about that. But this episode is another small good reminder of why that is, because it's very believable. It's not... It's not love. Too often, in my opinion, fiction in general, but especially Star Trek, tends to treat two, a relationship between two people as if they are in what I usually hear referred to as puppy love. You know, puppy love is the second phase of love. First, there's infatuation and, oh, you're cute, or, oh, you're interesting, or, oh, you're hot, or whatever, right? Second phase is, oh, my God, not only are you interesting, cute, hot, or any combination of the above, you like me in return. I like you, you like me, and there's this kind of rush of excitement and energy about that. That's puppy love, right? Nothing against that, but that's a phase that you work out of. And in my experience, most people go down from there. But a real relationship, and I have seen a few in real life, only a few, kind of develop and mature from that point into something a little more concrete, a little more real. Yeah, there's downs, and yeah, there's ups. And there's friendship, and there's sexy, and there's romance, and there's connection, and there's real chemistry and dynamic interactions between the two. And I like that. And I like how they show that with Keiko and O'Brien. I really do. It's a good job. And it reminds me once again of why this is one of the very, very few relationships in Star Trek that I've never made fun of. Well, I shouldn't say never, but, you know, it, I'm okay with it, right? Anyways, just wanted to comment on that really quick. So O'Brien sees that a ship's coming in and knows that it's Cardassian. His immediate reaction, you know, Emergency distress call, shields up, weapons ready, evasive maneuvers, you know, do everything, get, do everything you have to do. He treats it like an urgent and immediate crisis. Now, that is exactly the correct response. It really is. I have to point it out because it's not the normal response. Most Starfleet personnel are not that competent when it comes to emergency situations. Now, I love Voyager. Really, I do. But one of the things that bothered me about... Season 2 is really the worst case for this, but several episodes of Voyager is when an emergency crisis would happen and they'd all just kind of wait. And I, as I did this during the ruminations, I would count out the seconds sometimes of how long it would happen between a crisis beginning and them actually responding to it. And it's this huge gap of time in an urgent situation. By contrast, O'Brien's just like, this, quick, go, 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 exactly as he should. But I have a question for you. Why do you think that is? Now I have two answers for you, and it could be both. Is it because they're Cardassians? Nothing more neat said. Is it because he's a Starfleet veteran? Nothing more need be said. Anywho, <clears throat> so then he's taken in for, for uh, the, the criminal processing, and what I find most amusing about that, <laughs> if you can call anything amusing about that situation, is, this is a hard episode to cover, by the way, I'm just going to admit that flat out, is the idea of him treating it like he has been captured by an enemy power, as a military operative. 
uh, base, you know, name, rank, designation, and that's all you get out of me, right? It's it's fairly typical thing. Starfleet has done that many times in the past, so that's not really a new thing or a new surprise. And of course, we see the extremely stereotypical, literally textbook example of trying to establish some kind of rapport with O'Brien. It's okay, I'm on your side. I'm, I apologize. We'll make your stay as comfortable as we can, blah, 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 blah. One recurring theme in this episode is they go out of their way to never tell anyone what his crimes are, what he's accused of. Now, they figure that out anyways, but it's so obvious why they do that, because it would be relatively easy to prove that he's innocent. No, really. There are several ways, even ignoring the very obvious ways they managed to prove his innocence here. They just happened to catch them because they didn't have an ironclad way of dealing with it. The voice modulation thing was the most obvious thing, but the fact that they were able to get in contact with the Maquis about this is also favorable in that matter. And, of course, they could genetically prove that the guy was Cardassian, so... Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, that's why they never tell him that anybody the crimes, because if they did, they would just be giving them that much quicker of a chance of trying to fight this. As is, they, they actually succeeded anyway, so you could see the, the reasoning there. Let me just say really quick... I like Odo in this episode. He is wonderfully blunt, brutal, merciless, and honest. This is this is Odo at his Odoist, because he is adamantly interested in truth and justice. And I stress that word, because justice at its most basic level is about balance. Negative, positive, balance out. Very simple. Now, obviously, real life is not quite that binary. But that is Odo's mindset. He is always, well, I shouldn't say he's always, because that's not true. But ever since certain incidents we'll find out about in the past, Odo has been really big on the concept of justice, of balancing that equation. And so the way he interacts with Keiko is wonderful. He approaches her, and it's, it's a unique talent to say something horrible and awful and cruel with a tone of compassion and caring. Keiko, Miss O'Brien, it is standard procedure under these circumstances for him to be tortured in interrogation. Just telling her that. It shows a degree of respect, and it says an interesting insight into Odo's mindset. You'll notice Sisko, who also would be aware of that same fact, did not did, did not say that. In fact, tried to dodge around that and to avoid the entire thing to as as a human way of trying to save her sympathies or her feelings. Odo's just like, no, here's the truth. I like that. And Odo is, of course, also the one who manages to arrange himself to get a seat, basically, for this trial. Which is good, by the way, because he managed to help them delay the trial long enough for the Federation to do something about it which was probably his plan from the very beginning, let's be honest, because Odo knows the Cardassian ju judicial system. I can't call it a justice system in good conscience. And um, legal system. We'll call it the Cardassian legal system. That feels appropriate. And um, <laughs> we also, uh, he also manages to... He approaches O'Brien later on in the episode, and he walks into the room, and he's like, Listen, I... Did you do this? Did you accomplish this? And he just gets harsher and harsher with each line. We have vocal documents of this. We have evidence of this. There was something they took from their thing. And he just grills O'Brien. Again, 
mercilessly, bluntly, brutally. But one of the things that has been very well established at Oz, Oz, as Odo's character traits is that he is observant. And one thing that has also been mentioned, I think, once, and I've always personally believed, is that Odo is very good at catching liars in lying. And you could just tell that he is grilling O'Brien to determine for himself, for Odo's mind, whether O'Brien was innocent or not. And having just absolutely nailed him to the wall, O'Brien didn't flinch. He didn't falter, he didn't waver, and so Odo is satisfied. This is an innocent man. Now, I love that because, A, Odo would presume neither guilt nor innocence originally. Most people would have personal bias. Oh, he could never do that. Oh, she could never do that. Odo doesn't tend to have that kind of a thing. He approaches it and says, well, they might have done that. They probably didn't, but they might have. Therefore, Odo, and this, is, this has been established before, too. This is not a new thing. Odo seeks to strip away that probably as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And when he does, now I have the truth. And he treats the truth as an absolute. And you'll notice his tone and his demeanor change completely when he is convinced O'Brien is innocent. Sits down next to him, comforts the man, and then says, and I quote, Keiko's going to go in there and she's not going to be crying. She's not going to give them that satisfaction. And you, <clears throat> I lost my quote. <laughs> I want the Archon to see the clear, unwavering eyes of an innocent man. I liked that quote. <sighs> so, forgive me, I kind of skipped ahead a little bit. Earlier on, uh, Fritz, or, uh, Korat, Kovat? Kovat comes in. He's the lawyer. So he's talking about, you know, all crimes are solved. All criminals are punished. Even the most poor person can walk the streets in the middle of the night without fear and blah, 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 blah. Uh, this episode, if it's not obvious, was extremely influenced by 1984, uh, openly and acknowledgedly. And I'm staring at this, and I'm looking at, uh, at the guy, and I'm like, Kind of reminds me a lot of the Chancellor. Watch and talk for a bit. He sounds a lot like the Chancellor, and no joke. You can well, you can ask. You can't ask my roommate, but I was actually like, rather loudly, that can't be him. Holy crap! It and I looked at him. It is him. That's Fritz Weaver. Now that's not exactly a big name, but the episode uh, "The Obsolete Man" is actually one of my favorite episodes of the Twilight Zone. Like in the top 10 or top 20-ish. And I've re-watched it multiple times. So, in this circumstance, with this kind of Orwellian, you know, dictatorial, tyrannical oppression thing, and having this guy, oh, things are solved. And I was just like, really? You got him to do this? I just had to gush about that, because I couldn't believe it was actually him. I, don't, I can't believe I've never noticed that before. Anyways... <clears throat> I want to give credit to the set department as well. As, again, as with Mark Major in the background acting, having a good set, having a good backdrop is very important to the execution of immersion when it comes to television, in my opinion. And they do a great job of that with this set. It is stark. It is dark. It has very harsh lines. Lots of angular and lots, it's actually very small. In fact, it is the hollow suite uh, set re redressed for this. But a couple other things I noticed, too. 
The prisoner area is shaded deliberately, so you can just barely see their faces, but there's like deliberate shadows being cast on them, and of course the whole area is dark. Whereas the Archon area is very bright and very uplifting and very higher up than everything else in the area. A very efficient and uh, manipulatively symbolic setup. We also get a little bit of insight into how the Cardassian legal system works here. Now, funnily enough, this whole episode came out of a single line that was written for a previous episode in, in uh, Dukat. Oh, in Cardassia, all, uh, all uh, criminal proceedings go the same way. And the, ju the, the jurisdiction? No. Jurisdiction? The judgment, it's not the right word, is always the same. Guilty, right? And they apparently made this entire episode out of that base concept. But what I find more interesting than that is how many options they give O'Brien or Kovat or anyone involved to basically say, all right, trial's over, I give up. They do that constantly. They did that when they first grabbed him. They did it when he was being processed. They did it when he was first being brought into the court. They did it when Keiko was being brought into the court. They did it when the... I keep calling him a lawyer. That's actually the wrong term. Please forgive me. Fritz Weaver's character. When he offers it up, and I believe there was a sixth time uh, when he was actually being uh, addressed directly. So that's six total times, roughly, that he had the option to just say, yep, I give up. And in that, along with another line, which is almost a throwaway line uh, by the Archon, she says, this is the longest criminal, criminal procedure trial in the history of Garnassia. Between those two things, we get an insight into how this works. I actually picture someone being brought in. I, yes, do you have anything to say for yourself? Yes, I confess. I did it. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Very well. Uh, we will uh, send you aside, and you will accept the, the, the consequences of your actions. You know, and then, oh, th and probably s blah, 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 for the sake of the public, and then he's often killed, right? That's messed up in its own right. Probably one of the funniest uh, remarks in the episode is the Archon mentions something. You know, in your courts, uh, of course, you can do things like add evidence and whatnot. You would expect us to follow your judicial process if we were in your territory. Therefore, you should respect ours. Now, that is an incorrect argument. Let me just start with that. Uh, that is actually a fallacy to presume that because A, therefore B. There's a proper name for that fallacy. I don't remember right now. Please forgive me. But it is an inaccurate argument. It is something that can be literally logically diced apart because A does not equal B. <laughs> it's so easy to do, right? But in this case, it's a twofold problem because obviously cases of jurisdiction do actually apply like this, but this is not a matter of jurisdiction. This is not a judicial arrangement. This is not a matter of a justice system. I was kind of making fun earlier when I called it a legal system instead of a, ju a justice system. But that's also literally true. This is not their method of dealing with criminal matters. This is their method of maintaining a semblance of cultural propaganda. Both in a good way and a bad, I feel like pointing out. The bad is obvious. 1984, blah, blah, blah. But the good if we were to presume such a thing, if we were to be as absolutely fair and understanding as possible, let's presume for a moment that there's no obsidian order, no horrifically evil Cardassian, you know, dystopian thing. 
if we're to presume that they still had a similar system under those circumstances, then what we have is them having a built-in system whose purpose it is to uplift people, to provide them entertainment, to make them feel better about themselves, and to serve as a warning to people who might actually involve themselves in the real criminal system. I would picture then, and this is pure conjecture at this point, but the idea of there being a separate, actual judicial system, which then ejects people who are either found guilty or are politically expedient or whatever, into this separate system to then be publicly tried as part of this uh, entertainment media thing. I'm I'm trying really, really hard not to talk on any modern-day real things because controversy can just go burn. But, I mean, coliseums, right? <laughs> you know? This is such an easy concept to understand when you think about it. Thus, I contest strongly that there are, that her argument is not valid here, that this is not a judicial matter. How can it be, given the circumstances and the definition of the terms? This is instead a matter of bread and circuses. Now that's fine. <laughs> fine. But that doesn't mean I have to respect it as a member of an, uh, a foreign power. Not at the same level that I would afford the respect of my own judicial processes. Moving along. So... Boone's presence was awesome. The, the, I have to give this episode, like, it's not a bad episode, and it's not a great episode, but my favorite moment in the entire episode is when Sisko walks in with Boone, and the Archon just looks over and is just like, ah, <laughs> no, no one has to say anything. I love that. She just goes off on this wonderful flowery speech about how she's going to let O'Brien go. She even gives a Cardassian excuse for doing so, something that Cardassian people will accept. You know what that excuse is? Family. I've pointed it out before, and it will sure as hell come up again. Cardassians have a really big thing on family. And so, because this man has a strong emphasis on and, and strong family ties, we're going to go ahead and let him go on that basis, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, we know the real reason they let him go, because this is such a potentially massively destabilizing element that they could do on basically on public TV, on world broadcast. And... um yeah, that would be very, very bad for the people, and for the government, and for their foreign affairs. Which is the next thing I want to bring up. They surgically altered this guy to look like Boone, right? I like that, because I'm pretty sure, although I have no proof of this, that this was being done as a deliberate hint of what would eventually come. Now, there's some DS9 stuff with that that I'm not going to cover right now. The main thing I want to cover is Seska. I know this is probably giving people too much credit, but I'd like to think that this was being done as foreshadowing for what the Cardassians are willing to do and what Seska is. Anyways. <laughs> once again, by the way, once again, an episode about the Maquis, the Maquis are the least interesting thing in it. <laughs> we find out in this episode, and they have a whole explanation scene at the end where they're just a little bit too obvious. It's like, hang on, we got to explain everything for people who didn't pick up on everything. The whole point here, though is the Maquis have become such a problem and such a threat that the Cardassian side of the line is actually having trouble dealing with them. Basically, they stirred up the hornet's nest so badly that now it's pushing back on them and they're not sure how to deal with that. If they had... So, in other words, they're willing to go through this whole scheme in order to manufacture 
proof that the Federation is officially supporting the Maquis, which would allow them to politically push the Federation out of the demilitarized zone entirely and forcibly remove those colonists from Federation protection. If those colonists are no longer Federation citizens, this problem goes away from the Cardassian mindset, because then they could just send in the military. And that's the end of that. Which brings up yet another interesting point. <laughs> um, I've mentioned before the idea that these people are Federation citizens and it's one of the biggest problems for everyone concerned. Um, given that the entire point of this plot was to make them no longer Federation citizens and, you know, and then wipe them out, uh, maybe that should be a hint to the Maquis that there's not really a positive end game for their particular pattern of approach to this whole Cardassian problem. Just a thought. <laughs> I'm not going to preach here. I've, I've talked about the Maquis so much lately. I just wanted to bring it up really quickly. I don't have much else to say about this episode. Um, certainly some excellent performances by several characters. It was great to see Fritz Weaver again. And um, I have to admit, Odo was awesome in this episode. It's funny, especially, if, if I may be so bold really quick, I mentioned how he was obviously delaying. Odo knows the judicial, the the legal system of the Cardassians. He is well-versed in it. He demonstrates how well-versed in it he is. And then he goes out of his way to act ignorant of it to delay. It's a very subtle point because they never actually mention it. They never come up and say, hey, and explain this to you in your face. They just kind of leave it in there in the background. I just wanted to give special praise to that little aspect of his character. I did enjoy this episode, or at least parts of it. <sighs> it's always nice to see an innocent man go free. I will see you guys next time.